Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. I'm Emma. <laughs> I'm Dean. <laughs> Carrie has this, this mischievous <laughs> smile. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Carrie. <laughs> Dean's going to tell us a story about something weird in the world, right, Dean? That's true. It happened a little while ago, though. How little of a while? Like how long ago? Oh, Last like week? over two hundred years. Oh, see, oh well, that's not a little while. I was I was more spot on than mom. Yeah. What did you What did you say? She said last week. I said eighteen hundred. A little while. Okay. Yeah, a little while is not two hundred years. So now Carrie's defining what a little while means for the world, <laughs> and apparently it's a week or two. Okay. Yeah. So a long time ago. Let's talk about the old rough and tumble days of Vermont. Manchester, Vermont, specifically. <laughs> How many Manchesters are there I in the world? A lot. I think they all, everybody says Manchester. Pick a new town name, I, you I know? I can't agree more. Man, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, so isn't many there Manchester- 34 Springfields, which is why the Simpsons chose it to be called Springfield? So they wouldn't have to say which state yeah, they're in. Yeah, probably. Something like that. Manchester, I'm, I'm going to say this, 19. Okay. <laughs> Early 19th century, Manchester was, you know, Vermont was more of a rough and tumble place than it is now. There were no Yankee candles, for instance. There were no <laughs> endless rows of antique shops with same-sex married couples as proprietors. There just wasn't that kind of Vermont. It was actually kind of the hinterland, kind of the, the rural backwoods of the country at the time. Hmm. It's hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine the way Vermont is very genteel now, or at least it has that perception. Why are you looking at me like that? Am no, I, I don't think I don't, like Vermont. I don't think of it as genteel. Well, you know, it just it's. I think, I think of it. It's a progressive. And I think of it as like a calm, like it's that side of the country's organ. Or yeah. What, what organ exactly? Oh, Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> it's organ. Okay. Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> so, in this time, though, there are a lot of the let's call them unread rural folk out there in Vermont in, in the early 1800s. You know, just kind of backwoodsy, uneducated. You're saying yeah. unread, like yeah. uneducated? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. They don't read. It's a, it's a common phrase. They're not well-read. Okay. Yes. Uh, some of these rural folk were the Born family. B, I've seen it spelled mostly B-O-O-R-N. Sometimes it's spelled B-O-U-R-N, although that might be a modernization of the spelling there. So let's go with it. doesn't matter. I'm going to pronounce it the same way. <laughs> so the Bourne family was led by Barney Bourne and his wife Elizabeth. Money. Barney Bourne. In uh, 1812, the family farm was also home to their two sons, Stephen and Jesse, and their daughter, Sally. All were adults and married with families of their own oh. on this small farmhouse in uh, uh. In small farm Manchester, house? fairly small, yeah. Right. Too bad. Because also living, <laughs> not it wasn't just the farm. The last person in the house we need to know about was Uncle Amos. He was the uncle to he was Barney's brother, the uncle to Stephen and Jesse and Sally. Okay, that sets the scene for the household here. Ready? Sally's husband of about twenty years or so was a man named Russell Colvin. Okay. He is the subject of our story tonight. Okay. Today, whenever the time you're listening to this is. In the early 1800s, Russell and Sally had lost their farm. So a little while before this occurrence in 1812, they'd lost their farm. It was Russell's family farm. So Russell had inherited his small family farm from his father. He was married to Sally, and they lived there with his mom, right? But 
when the father was out of the picture, the townspeople of Manchester felt that Russell was so, quote, feeble-minded that he could not possibly run the farm successfully. They huh. thought, hmm. I know, listen, here, this, is, this is amazing. Can you imagine this happened today? It'd be all over Fox News. But <laughs> the town thought that, listen, he's going to run that farm into the ground because he's so dumb, and he's going to leave his widowed mother destitute. We can't have that. So to protect her, his mom, from her son's stupidity, they took the farm from Russell, leased it to sort of competent tenant farmers, and used the rent money from those tenant farmers to support the, the widow mom. Colvin. Well, how do they have the authority I to do this? Have yeah. No idea. But can you imagine the shitstorm? Again, Russell Colvin would be all over Fox News <laughs> about that. They took my damn farm away. Yeah. Government. Well, didn't yeah. he own it? I don't get it. He inherited it. He inherited it, it from his which dad. Which would mean he owns it. I, the family owns it, yeah. I, I don't know how much you know. his mom had connivance in this. Probably a lot. It's like, yeah, you know what? My son is dumb, and I would rather that you guys take it and give it to these tenant farmers who can... I'm on Russell's side. Okay, well... We'll just... You just wait now. Well, yeah. We'll <laughs> a little For bit now, early to, I'm on Russell's side. Now, okay. A little early to take sides. So now there's no place else to turn. So Russell and Sally and their six... Children, holy moly, took up residence in the Bourne family farm. So it's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Barney, three kids, all their kids, and Uncle Amos in this farmhouse in uh, wow. Manchester, Vermont. Yikes, yeah, that no, is crazy. No bueno. Well, and the two brothers and their families. Yeah, that's what I said. Jesse yeah, and the Stephen. three kids oh, okay. and their family. Yeah, Jesse and Stephen already there with their families, somewhat hypocritically, but maybe understandably, were did not appreciate this new arrangement at all. They did not want Colvin and that family there. That is pretty hypocritical. It is, it is. But it was not a, you know, they were scraping by themselves. And now you have eight more mouths to feed from this one small farm. It was not easy going. So other than being a bit simple, there's one more thing you have to know about Russell Colvin. That is that he had this odd habit of sometimes just getting up and going for a walk and not coming back. Sometimes a day, sometimes two days, sometimes a few, few weeks, one time, nine months. Jesus. Well, what was wrong with him? He was a bit slow. So, like, he was mentally handicapped, basically? I, I mean, I don't know what we'd call it nowadays, but he wasn't. I mean, again, the yeah. town took a farm away because they knew he couldn't run a small family farm. Huh. So, he had this habit of doing that. He had always, remember this though, he had always told people before, I'm going to go for a walk. I might, be, might not be back for a while. I don't think he ever said, I'll be back in nine months. But he, he would inform someone, his wife, his kids, yeah. that he's going to be gone for a while, right? This was reminiscent, by the way, of his own father, who back in 1801 had walked out on his own family, wound up in Rhode Island, and never came back. So that's right. You heard that right. The widow, Colvin, was really the abandoned Colvin. So his own father had abandoned and never returned. Just just left. Just, just left. walked away. Yeah. Found it found his way to Rhode Island and said, I like it here, I'm gonna stay. Bye, fam. Okay. Huh. I'm assuming he went out for a pack of cigarettes. Probably. So but Russell had always come back. He'd done many of these walkabouts. He'd always come back to Sally and the six kids. Always until he didn't. <gasps> dun dun dun. Sally Colvin herself would also go occasionally on a, on a walkabout, usually very, very short term, but she did it too. This, this is not a, That's not a great weird. No. <laughs> These poor children. In, in between her constant pregnancies, she would sometimes disappear for a few days. Yeah. She was, it turns out, out of town 
on the day of May 10th, 1812. That was in Russell and his son, Lewis. By the way, the son, Lewis, is later in this, is described as 17 years old. I don't know if that meant he was 17 years old here in, 17, in 1812 or if he was 17 in 1819, seven years later, when the rest of the story is going to take place. So he's either 10 or 17. Anyway, Lewis and, and his dad, Russell, are out working the farm with Stephen and Jesse. You know, that's, that's Russell's Uncle. brothers-in-law. Mm-hmm. The f- and they got into a little bit of an argument. As usual, it centered about, you know, all those extra mouths to feed. Why don't you go? You know, you're such a loser. Mm-hmm. Right? According to Lewis, Russell's son, after hours of just sort of sniping at each other, I'm assuming hoeing and things yes. like that, the cabbage or something like that. <laughs> I don't know exactly what kind of farm it was. I'm not Farmer sure. McGregor's. The farmer Mc- what? Who's what? What's she saying? What's Cabbage. that reference to? I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. From um, Peter Cottontail. Oh, oh, Carrie just made a Peter Cottontail <laughs> reference for everyone there. I hope everyone got that because I did not. I didn't either. No idea we're talking about Carrie. So after the sniping went on for a while, it turned violent when Russell took a hit, Stephen with a, quote, stick the size of a writer's whip. Oh, damn. Smacked him, smacked him with that, right? Stephen, not happy, he retaliated by picking up a nearby tree limb and smashing Russell over the head with it. Good Uh-oh. God. Stephen was... Uh, a bit of an ass. A bit of a dick. It knocked, him to, knocked Russell to the ground. Russell tried to get up, and Stephen just knocked him down again. <laughs> so seeing his father motionless on the ground... The courageous young Lewis, boom, took off, darted, got the hell out of there. Oh. <laughs> Left. Adios. I'm gone. I thought you were going to say you helped his dad. No, 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 no. No, he didn't, he didn't want any part of that. He, had, he made a business decision <laughs> to not go up against Stephen with his tree limb. Maybe he was going for help. Uh, no, he just didn't come back. Uh-huh. Uncle Stephen was, again, Uncle Stephen was a badass and, and a, a, a rough guy. He was a little bit of a thug. So... Here is where the story really starts, because at, at that point, Russell Colvin disappears. He vanishes off the face of the earth. It's not completely clear what happened the rest of that day. Who saw what? Did anybody see him walk get away, up wander. and walk away into the house and exactly. whatever? Or walk I mean, away? No one did. But remember, assumption. This sounds like a pretty open and shut case. Yeah. <laughs> well, the only person's there are, because remember, Lewis took off. The only person's there where it's Russell was, was Stephen, and, was Stephen and Jesse. I think he's buried under brothers. the cabbage patch. Ooh. The cabbage bag. <laughs> now, you're turning Peter Cottontail into a really dark, dark story. Now. You're the one that made it cabbage. I suppose. I, I, I regret that now. Carrots. How about carrots? Wait, hold on. They probably had carrots on <laughs> that farm too, I'm assuming. Of course. Probably. Okay, my bad. Uh, uh, let's go with Belgian endives. Okay. <laughs> Was that ever mentioned in Peter Cottontail? No? We're going with Belgian endives okay. then, or, and or Brussels sprouts. So the next day, though, Russell Colvin was nowhere to be seen. He was gone. Again, that was not unusual because he did leave without on these little walkabouts. Again, though, he had he never left without, without telling someone that he was gone. In this yeah. case, he didn't tell he anybody. He just disappeared. This isn't super mysterious. Oh, trust Wait. me, it is going to be very <laughs> weird. There are some twists and turns here. I believe. Okay. Me. So, and though Russell had been gone for as, again as long as nine months, these nine months turned into a year. A year turned into a few years, those few years turned into seven years of no Russell Colvin. It seemed that Russell had finally ditched the Bourne family for good, like his dad had done, though, remember. Some neighbors 
commented, even at the time, shortly after Russell disappeared, or in the early days of Russell's disappearance, that Sally and the rest of the family didn't really seem to care, even as it dragged on. No one really cared that he was AWOL. They didn't try to go look for him. Even I mean, Stephen and, and Jesse were glad he's gone, but Sally, that was her husband, she seemed very blithe about it. Didn't really seem to worry her much at all. The bad blood, again, between Russell and the brothers was very well known throughout the town. So everybody knew they didn't like each other. Let's call that motive, right? So when Colvin's disappearance did drag on, they started to suspect that the Jesse and Stephen maybe did have something to do with it, as Carrie has already convicted them and hung them. Yeah, so, <laughs> Just yeah. Stephen, not Just Stephen, not Jesse. Jesse was there. Yeah, he may be an accessory after the fact. Okay. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> you know, let's stop now. <laughs> probably Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Many townspeople had heard, as you probably guessed, Stephen in particular complain. You know, they, they all knew he complained bitterly about Colvin being a sponge and a drunk and spending more time at the local tavern than he did helping work the farm. Mm -hmm. So this bad blood was well known in the town, hence the suspicion. But also remember, the Bourne family were no angels. The Bourne family (laughs) were no angels. Yeah, They were kind of rough and tumble. I've used that phrase like three times, (laughs) and I don't think I've ever used it until today. Wasn't everybody in Vermont at the time? Not everybody, but they were kind of, like I said, they were a little bit of a thuggy, low-life family. It didn't start out that way. Stephen and Jesse's grandparents, so Barney's parents, were the ones who settled there, the first borns to settle there in Vermont, when it was really, you know. Where were they from? I don't know. Germany? No. I don't know. New New York? York, Probably. (laughs) Maybe from Europe. I don't know where they're from. But they, those people, the grandparents, Nathaniel and Freelove born. Ooh. That's the best name so far. Freelove. Her name. The mom, the grandma's name was Freelove. Is that a Quaker name? It's got to be. Sounds Quakery. I don't know. It's a cool name, whatever it is. It has a whole new meaning now than it did back then, I'll bet you. I don't know. Yeah, it probably did. (laughs) (laughs) She was a bit slutty. So I'm not supposed to say that. No, she you're was, not. Uh, I'm slut shaming, aren't I? Yeah, don't say that. Okay. She enjoyed free love. That's true. That's true. It With, would be as, a much nicer way to say it. That's true. I suppose you're right. But they had been salt of the earth. They had, they had founded the First Baptist Church in Manchester. They had been really supposedly well, good people. What? If they founded the First Baptist Church, it's not likely they were Quakers. You're right. <laughs> That's, that does follow. Maybe they're born. She was born a Quaker. But she married into the Baptist. Converted to the Baptist. There. No, she abdicated. Now we're both right. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in the last, in the next two generations, it had degenerated quite a bit. My and goodness. Even Barney was a little bit of a ne'er do well, but Steve and Stephen was just a punk. He was said to be quote malicious, passionate. And when angry, blind to the consequences, like hitting people over the head, head with tree, tree limbs. limbs. Yeah. <laughs> And Jesse was sort of a follower. He did kind of whatever his nasty brother. Was Stephen the oldest? Yes. Stephen was older than Jesse, and, and Jesse just sort of took his cues from the pretty nasty Stephen. Hmm. Kind of like you Sa- and your brother. Pardon? Kind of like you and your no, brother. Not really at all. <laughs> Even Sally was said to be, quote, one of the devil's unaccountables. Oh, my goodness. I think she was, and back in the day, they might have called her... Free, with free her loving. Love as well. Yeah, she was not super, super faithful. Her, Were her, all of um, those children's Russells? Who probably not? Children's. Children's. I like children's. <laughs> they probably not. And she and her walkabouts very likely to go have fun with someone at a tavern. So respect. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good for her. Damn it. She's really empowering herself as a woman. Well, what else was she supposed to do when Russell was out wandering around for? 
Oh, I don't know. She had six kids at home. Raised her uh, children. So, wow. Okay. They were both shitty. Both yeah, her and Russell. <laughs> they were not great people. Local gossip then started sort of remembering things about that time when Russell was still here. Things like one of the brothers, they said, had said something to the effect of, quote, we have put him where potatoes will not freeze. What does that mean? <laughs> In the early 19th century, Vermont, I think that meant something to people. It must have. It was. You uh, didn't look that up? I, I don't know what to look. Where, what old where, timey Vermont sayings. Where really. will potatoes not freeze? I'm guessing a potato cellar underground, right? Yeah. Regardless, whatever it meant to them specifically, it wasn't good. Yeah. And the good widow, Sally, supposed widow, had plenty of boyfriends after Colvin left. And remember, though, she didn't know her, uh, her husband was dead or alive. In fact, for a while, quite a while, she should have just thought he was on one of his long walkabouts. But here she is um, getting it on. That, so that seemed to some people like she knew his absence was permanent. Mm. So this, this also fueled speculation. Well, but it sounds like she... Was engaging in activities even when, but he, this was the town gossip. Permanent. Yeah, so they yeah. were just trying to they find something. That. Yeah, okay. See how that works. Okay, you don't sure. you know town gossips? No, but you must. You you, must. M- you are the town you gossip. Kind of are <laughs> gossip. You and, and your that. friend Heather are the town gossips. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we gossip about? I, Everybody. I, I see you peeking out the blinds. <laughs> <laughs> I like to know what's going on in front of my house. Okay, all right. <laughs> So she can gossip about it. No. <laughs> In the town. Yeah. But then old Uncle Amos, remember him? Yes. He now brings the whole thing back kind of to the present tense and makes it in uh, seven years after Russell Colvin disappeared, Uncle Amos had a dream. Psychic mm. oh. Uncle Amos? We'll see. So Amos born, he was said to be a Quote, man of impeachable character. Impeachable or unimpeachable? Let's go with unimpeachable. (laughs) (laughs) So he was a good guy? I wrote it as impeachable. I'm sure I meant it unimpeachable. Yes. He was very Trumpian. Yeah. He was was respected. (laughs) Okay. So when he said that Russell Colvin had come to him in a dream, people were inclined to, you know, take him somewhat seriously. Here's what he said. He said that Colvin came to him, his bedside, in the night as a ghost. And it's, it's, I'm not, so does that make him like a dream ghost? Or, or I don't know. It's not exactly So clear. in the dream, he was dead in a ghost. Yes, exactly. Okay. There you go. She got it. I gotcha. understand. And that this Colvin ghost dream said, I have been murdered. Ooh. And that his murderers, Colvin told Amos, whom he did not yet name, had secreted his body in a cellar hole in a potato field on the Bourne farm. All coming together. It's all... Amos said he had the dream at least three separate times, I think three nights in a row. And as we all know, that is the magic number that turns a dream into either a prophecy or the truth and divine intervention. Oh, and I have it? a lot of reoccurring dreams <laughs> that are... Huh. If you have them three times, this is what my mom said. If you have really? them three times in a row, it's true. Or I, I, you, I've read it before. Oh, maybe it's you know it's a prophecy. You've seen the future mm. or something like that. So nice. he has. So Amos, Uncle Amos, had these repeated dreams in which Colvin said, "I've been murdered. Go find my body. I'll tell you where my body is." So locals dug into the cellar hole and they found. What do you think they found? 
his body. I'm Carrie. guessing they didn't find his body. Oh, they found some broken crockery. Oh. Crockery? Crockery. And they found a button. Oh. Oh, as Jack would say, a button. <laughs> they found a penknife and, wait for it, a jackknife. No skeleton. No, nothing. Nothing yeah. whatsoever. No, no So signs. no dead body. No dead body. No, it's been seven years, so presumably a skeleton by this time, but they found nothing in the potato cellar hole. In the potato, I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure what it is. You're in a potato field, and what you just dig a, a, a stone hole and put potatoes in there. I think. I'm, I guess Probably. to make them not to, freeze. Yeah, or to yeah. no to um store them. Yeah, but after this, so that's that's a little bit of a you, you know okay. Well, that's not really a body. What we would do with that? But then came a lightning strike from none other than the Colvin's. I want to call her widow. Colvin's, Colvin's wife, Sally. Right. Stephen and Jesse's sister, mind you. She said that all those items found, the crockery, the button, the penknife, the jackknife, had been had belonged to her husband, Russell. And he was just <gasps> holding on to some crockery while they were out tilling the farm field. Let's ignore the crockery. <laughs> let's just say, let's just agree, it was his button, his penknife, and his jackknife. At least that's what yeah. Sally said. Remember, this clearly is going to put suspicion on her own brother. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, forgotten in all the excitement by the townspeople, who by this time were extremely suspicious of Stephen and Jesse, but forgotten was the fact that Sally had a motive to say these things. She wanted Russell dead. Not necessarily dead dead, but at least declared dead. Why, you ask? Are you going to ask why? No, I know why. What? Money? Not exactly. Oh. Money, yes, but not life insurance. Hmm. It hmm. seems that Sally had given birth to a new little Colvin after Russell had disappeared. In oh, fact, <laughs> three years after oh. Russell had disappeared. So it could not physically be his spawn. And it, it, it happened after one of her road trips. She mm-hmm. came back and I'm pregnant. The law at the time said that any child born to a married woman was just assumed as the husband's child. Right. Biologically, mm-hmm. period. Yes. Just an assumption. Since Russell was not dead, it was assumed that was Russell's child, so Sally could not get Uh, any financial support from the actual biological father, which she very much wanted to do. So she wanted him declared dead so they would not see that baby as Russell's. Exactly, exactly. And therefore, she could get some, some cash. She would have to, it's called swear the child. So she would have to swear the child by naming the biological father and that would compel, and to, in order to compel financial support, so getting Russell, like you said, getting Russell dead would be the only way in the eyes of the law that he would not be Russell's, the child would not be Russell's child, and she can get some cash right. from her and baby daddy. Okay. Okay? The problem was, though, when she did identify these things as Russell's, again, so she sees, the, oh, oh, look, they found this shit. Oh, okay, and that's buried on her, and he's been gone for three years, well, seven years at this time. Yeah, those are his, so he must be dead, right? And. What does that do? It also cast more suspicion on her own brothers, Stephen and Jesse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if Russell was murdered and someone buried his stuff, it's very obvious who that murderer had to have been. Got it? Yeah. Now, then some weird things happened, and that made the townsfolks of Manchester, who are apparently just a bunch of gossips, more suspicious of Stephen and Jesse. First, the born barn went up in flames. Just a mysterious fire and it burned to the ground. Goodness. Hmm. 
Was it to cover up something from the murder of Colvin? The gossips whispered. <laughs> they, is that what they did the killing, maybe? And they went to burn any evidence now that people were starting to suspect them? Yeah, that was the story. That's kind of shaky. That was You've already hung them, Carrie. Yeah. So I don't, don't be backing off now. Yeah, but seven years later, what? Because there's all the, there's there? suddenly the suspicion is heightening. They found some of his effects in the potato cellar where they buried it. Uh-oh. We buried... A body or something else in the barn. Let's burn it to hide the evidence. That was the the thinking. What? It makes sense, Gary. What under a bale of hay? No, in the ground somewhere. Okay, then the or ground maybe still was, exists, even maybe if they, you burn the barn. They want to make sure they got rid of that blood stain. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's kind of my point, Gary. Don't question it. How sophisticated do you think Vermont forensics were? <laughs> Pretty sophisticated. Yeah, top Harry. of the line. I mean, if they found their DNA, they could be tried for murder. <laughs> yeah. So, please. Okay. A few days later, a boy was out walking his dog near the Bourne farm. The dog, sniffing something apparently very desirable, raced over for a stump and started digging frantically at the base of this old stump, right? Some accounts have the dog digging something up from beneath the stump. Others say that curious townsfolk, and apparently people wandering around all the time, near farms. I don't know, how, I don't, I don't know exactly how this geography is laid out, but there's some townsfolk saw the dog digging at the stump and said, hey, that's suspicious, and they dug up what we're going to find out was beneath the stump. I choose to believe the dog dug it up himself because, and then started like gnawing on it because what the dog brought up was a bone. Ooh. And what the dog brought up a little bit later were several more bones. Were they human dun, bones? Dun, dun. Someone noticed that the, do- the dog dug at the bones. The townspeople grabbed the- got the bones. They took them to a couple, I think a couple, two doctors, and the doctor said, these are human bones. Oh, there you have it. So the gossips are in a full rage now. They sort of spun a story, or a story developed about what happened, according to all these, these new findings now. They figured that maybe the Bourne brothers had buried Colvin in the cellar after they murdered him, as many originally thought, and as the ghost Colvin said, right? But maybe they then they dug up the remains and they reburied him in the barn. Hence, they had to burn mm. down the barn. But the lack of any body in the... In the um, I'm sorry, that would explain both the lack of anybody in the, in, the, in the cellar, in the potato cellar, and the reason for burning down the barn. Then, feeling the heat, pun intended, <laughs> the boys, Stephen and Jesse, again dug up the now skeletal remains from the barn, and they buried them under the stump, where unfortunately the dog found them out and well, they, ruined everything for Steve them. Steve and Jesse just cannot. When they should maybe stop moving the body, <laughs> maybe bury it anywhere but their farm, yeah. perhaps, guys. So that was the story that the townspeople sort of came up with the story. This this became like this is what happened. It became almost a matter of yep, they did it. Here's yeah. how they did it. However nonsensical that story was, it was enough for early 19th century American what local do you mean nonsensical. Why wasn't that nonsensical? You buy it? Yeah. Well, law enforcement did. Well, I don't buy the barn part. You don't buy the barn. That's the only part. Yeah. No, they could have buried it temporarily there. They they had to burn it down. (laughs) There's some evidence again, some DNA DNA evidence there in the barn. So they burned the barn down, and they figured it's it's safe in the stump. Or they just buried it in the stump just before the dog dug it up. They didn't Mm -hmm. uh, bury it deep enough. Dog ratted them out. Yeah. Hmm. Makes sense. So and and the local sheriff was in agreement with you. 
and the state's attorney. They the, um, ordered the arrest of Jesse Bourne, who still lived on the farm there in Manchester, Manchester, based on this, let's call it semi-plausible rumor-mongering. <laughs> Father Barney Bourne was also arrested, and he was treated to a, quote, severe examination, Uh-oh. end quote, in front of a judge. Dun, dun. Not 100% sure, I don't know if there are thumb screws involved or what, <laughs> but he was taken to test, he was grilled in front of a judge. Apparently he passed this test, and he was released from custody. The authorities decided they didn't think he had anything to do with it. They think it was the brothers, Jesse and Stephen. The public was not happy about this. When they released Barney, the public was all up in arms. They were really out for blood at this point. They also clamored for Stephen Bourne to be brought to justice. He had, a few years before, though, moved to New York. So he was 100 miles away. Coincidence, people thought? Maybe not. Maybe he was exactly. getting out of town and his brother, Jesse, was too dumb to do so. So it didn't matter, though. The sheriff issued an arrest warrant for Stephen as well. Now, we're going to go into what happens next to uh, Jesse. Okay. I'm just going to uh, remind our listeners, we here at World, Weird World, we know a thing or two about the reliability of jailhouse snitches and for things like that, don't yes. we? We sure. <laughs> We've watched so many 48 hours yeah. and datelines and polizons. Trust me. We know that jailhouse snitches are routinely used by desperate detectives, that they routinely lie, that they are always motivated by some kind of a deal, that sometimes investigators deny that there's a deal, only to be found out later that there always was a deal in place, and that there really is no reason for a jury to ever believe anything any jailhouse snitch ever says but they do all the time. But I did not know that jailhouse snitches go back all the way to the early 19th century, hmm. at least, because apparently they do, because we have one here. <gasps> Jesse, <laughs> Jesse was shocked. put in a cell. Je- Jesse's arrested for the murder of Russell Colvin seven years ago. He's put in a cell with a convicted, or I'm sorry, an accused forger named Silas Merrill. Merrill... And it's not clear whether it was his own idea or if he was, you know, induced by the sheriff. He got word to the authorities that he would help them out. He would, because obviously everybody knows every murderer makes a full and complete confession to his cellmate pretty much right after they call top bunk. They start telling him. They got to brag. They have to. They got to get the credit for what they've done. It's a natural thing to do. You got to feel tough. Uh So Merrill claimed as we've heard so many times in, in recent times, that Jesse told him everything. Mm-hmm. Stephen had clubbed Colvin during an argument, which we which kind of agrees yeah. with what Lewis said, knocked him to the ground. But then, apparently after Lewis fled, Father Barney just sort of happened by or maybe wanted to go see what the ruckus was. And according to Merrill, who said, Jesse said this, Barney promptly took out, took Stephen's penknife and slit Colvin's throat right then and there as he lay motionless on the ground, knocked out unconscious. No apparent motive was given. Barney just saw the opportunity and snatched it. Jesus. Is the story that Merrill says that Jesse said. Okay. The born men then, uh, presumably all three of them, Jesse, uh, Barney, and and Stephen, then buried Colvin in a hole in the cellar for safekeeping, like, like everybody said, a couple of years later, they removed the remains and reburied them in the barn. All of this nicely following the town gossip that mm-hmm. had been 
being told for quite some time now, for a little while now. Then the fire torched the barn, and they moved Colvin's bones to that stump where, unfortunately, they didn't dig deep enough, and the dog found the bones. That was, again, as Merrill said, Jesse told him. And Merrill said, I'll testify under oath to all of the story. All you have to do is drop all charges for forgery. Uh-huh. The state's attorney on the case, his name is Calvin Sheldon. He said, yep, let's do it. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's not a surprise. Not at all. So what is a former cellmate to do when your erstwhile cellmate is about to go to court and put a rope around your neck? Kill him. He's in jail. Jesse. Jesse's in jail. He's just found out that his cellmate, Merrill, is going to testify in court, probably getting him hung. You do another thing that seems pretty modern to today's ears. You confess yourself. You sing. But you do so in a way that you put all the blame on co-conspirators. You minimize your own culpability, and you hope you get off of the lights. Well, it sounds like that's what the story Merrill was going to tell was anyway. Yeah, it is. But now Jesse is confirming it, essentially. So he, Jesse did just that. He said, mm. yep, I was there. I confess. I knew about the murder of Russell Col- Colvin. I was there. But as he told the state's attorney, Stephen did everything. So he left his dad out of it. So he disagreed with Merrill in that sense. Huh. But he said, yeah, Stephen killed him. I you know, didn't do it, but I knew about it. Mm-hmm. Super sorry. Don't My bad. <laughs> Jesse said Father Bonnie, again, had nothing to do with it. Now, some folks, you know, at the time and still do today, wonder was this because Barney was still in Vermont, right there, within easy reach of the authorities, uh, or, and then and Stephen was in New York, where maybe Jesse thought they'll never get him. If that was the assumption, if Jesse thought that hey, I can put everything on Stephen because mm-hmm. they're not going to get him, he was wrong. A Manchester constable found Stephen in New York. And told him, hey, you're one from the murder of Russell Colvin back in Manchester. Come back with me. Surprisingly, Stephen said, will do. No, no problem. <laughs> it's very shocking. I guess he, I, it's not clear that he heard anything about Merrill's test, potential testimony or about Jesse's confession. He probably didn't. But he said, I'm going to go back there and clear my name. Let's go. So Stephen goes back with the cop. They go back to Manchester. When Jesse, still in, in prison, in the jail, hears that Stephen is on his way back and has, is in the custody, and he mm-hmm. had just blamed Stephen for the whole murder, he immediately recanted his confession. He said it was just a desperate attempt to save my own and my father's lives in the face of the Merrill testimony that Merrill was full of shit. I never said that. He's lying. I take it back. My goodness. What do you think, what do you think the law said? No takesies backsies. Of, uh, <laughs> the actual legal Latin argument is no takesies <laughs> no backsies. backsies. Yes. It is too late. They said, you did it already. State, uh, the Sheldon, the state's attorney, he had already got the testimony from some locals, in addition to the confession and to the Merrill testimony, he had some locals with you know, great memories. We're remembering these things seven years ago, like how the Bourne brothers had, um, you know, had fights and things like that with Russell Colvin. Others recall that they even said some incriminating statements after Colvin disappeared all those years ago. They seemed to know that Colvin was dead immediately after he disappeared and that he was never coming back. These are some of the things I, I mentioned earlier. Yes. So all those things sort of come out here. So now the state's attorney has a confession from Jesse. He's got the testimony of Silas Merrill, and he's got all these eyewitnesses saying, yeah, there's some really suspicious things going on back then. 
who have apparently tremendous memories seven years after the fact. So the born men are in some serious trouble at this point. Yes, they are. But there was some doubt, right? I mean, just how solid was the evidence against them? Would it stand up to scrutiny? The answer to the first is not much evidence against them, and the answer to the second is not well at all. Let's investigate, well, shall we? You'll hear. I First, let's talk that. about the bones dug up by the dog, right? Yes. Yep. Luckily for the Borns, a man in a nearby county had had a leg amputated. This was very fortunate for them. What the hell? Because Wait, was it just a leg bone? It wasn't a full body bones? The man? No, the... The, the bones that they found. The main bone was a leg bone, yes. Oh, okay. Oh. And they found some other scraps of bones, but the primary bone was identified as a, the doctors identified as a, oh, a human I leg bone, right? they found everything. No, 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 just a few bones. Okay. And so somebody had the good idea, hey, let's just be sure, let's get that leg bone from the next door county that we know for a fact is a leg bone because we just cut it off this guy. Let's compare it to our leg bone that we think is Russell Colvin's leg bone. And the same doctors that had proclaimed the born bone as human compared it to the for sure shirzy real human leg bone and admitted, you know what? Mm, <laughs> Are you kidding? Not so much. Not only is it not a human leg bone, it wasn't even close. It was clearly a different, it was an animal bone. Okay, those doctors need to take up a new profession. This is 1819. Uh, yeah. I mean, doctoring wasn't... Super, super, super. They, I remember this what is are you a time. About? They it was still illegal know what to do look like. autopsies. So yeah, absolutely they should. But they they screwed up, Carrie. They got it, caught up in all the hubbub. Let's it say it was illegal to do autopsies in eighteen nineteen. Yeah, remember yeah. this is a time where we still, you know, maybe you uh, convicted killers, people who were executed could, could be autopsy, and that's it. Remember, you, we, huh. this is before in England had all those famous body snatchers. Things like that. No? You don't remember that? <laughs> Hand motions are great. I wish this was a video <laughs> podcast. That's how you signal body snatching. Uh-huh. Anyway, they said I, we were wrong. In fact, we were spectacularly wrong. Jesus. The born bone was not close. This is too little too late, though, wasn't it? Because think about it. If they had said the born bone in the first place was an animal bone, not a human bone, none of the other things would have happened. If they, right. Jesse would never have been arrested. Merle would have never flipped on him. And then he wouldn't have made his seemingly false confession. Nothing that yeah. starts if they say, ah, you know, this is a sheep's bone. Sorry, yeah. you know, so let's move on here. Next up was the supposed confessions, right? Jesse's confession was backed up by no physical or witness evidence. His father denied knowing anything to do with it, having anything to do with that. Stephen also, when they found him in New York, said, I had nothing to do with Russell Colvin's murder. So, so Jesse's confession and Merrill's confession were at odds. They were both considered kind of questionable. Hmm. Then there was the matter of the dreams of Colvin's visits by Amos <laughs> Bourne. Yes. That, remember that? That started this thing going. Yeah. Good Manchesterians, which I'm assuming what they call themselves, Manchesterians, Manchesterians, Manchestans, Manchurians, Manchurians. Hmm. Yes, that's it. They had attributed this to divine intervention and a sign of guilt. Remember, it was 1819. Some of that stuff was still real to them. So in the ensuing gossip about the fires and the reburied bones that gave Silas Merle his whole jailhouse snitch story, so what was taken as a sign of guilt, these Amos Bourne's dreams, were, were clearly what had given rise to the story that and the, and the gossiping that Merrill had followed 
in his recounting of Jesse's supposed confession. That, you know, okay. makes that confession yeah. a little questionable. Mm-hmm. A grand jury was then held in September of 1819. Silas Merrill, he, he recounted Jesse's supposed confession. Otherwise, the evidence was mainly based on, on um, Jesse's confession and that eyewitness testimony that I mentioned before about they knew he was dead and they said these very oh, yeah, suspicious yeah. things, things like that, right? And Lewis knew that they yes. conked him over the head. Lewis, Lewis also testified at the grand jury hearing for sure. And so the grand jury said, um, you know, it, it looked bad. Let's put it that way. Stephen, seeing how the grand jury was going, faced with his evidence that looked pretty bad for him, he pulled a Jesse, basically. He confessed to killing Colvin, but he claimed it had been self-defense. So he essentially threw himself at the mercy of the court. He claimed that, um, he hoped that it would mitigate him and he wouldn't be uh, uh, convicted for murder. And at least to his credit, he didn't pull in his brother and his father like his brother had yeah. put it on him and Silas Merrill had pulled had, had said it was the father. He just said, nope, nope, it was all me, but it was self-defense. I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Thank goodness. Huh. So, then, so then it has to go to trial, right? Because that, that was the grand jury. The grand jury had an indictment, whatever. They, they were going to try him for murder. The confession didn't really help yeah. in that regard. So they're going to try him for murder. Cellmate Silas Merrill, his... Uh, supposed recounting of Jesse's confession, it's now seen as unnecessary. And the police, the, the authorities must have realized it was a little questionable because they didn't even have him tr- uh, go to the trial at all. So he mm-hmm. testified at the grand jury. He did not testify at the actual trial. They figured now we have two confessions with this other supposed eyewitness evidence. We've got enough. And it was, it, in fact, there was so much evidence, or at least to the eyes of, the, of Manchester, that it was hard for the court to find 12 people who wouldn't to claim, um, swear themselves as unbiased. Yeah. yeah. Nope, I know he did it. We all know he did it. It was yeah, hard to actually yeah. find 12 jurors. Yeah. So <clears throat> they have the trial, though. They do find eventually 12 people who didn't read about OJ and the Bronco. <laughs> and perhaps uh, and at this trial, maybe the most damning testimony was from actually Lewis, the uh, Russell Coven 17-year-old son who told about the fight with his father and his uncles and claiming that Stephen had hit Coven with a club. And then he'd run away. I mean, that basically agrees with mo- the confessions about how it had happened. Mm-hmm. So whether Barney then slit his throat or not doesn't matter. It certainly puts Stephen as committed an act of violence against yeah. Colvin, and, and he's at best unconscious then. And kind of negates the self-defense defense. It kind of does, yeah. Although, remember, he was hit with a, with a stick prior to that. <laughs> so wow. it was a little bit of incitement. Yeah. He, just, he went to a stick fight with a tree trunk. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. all. Sister Sally was also no help at the trial. She testified that, as we've talked about, three years after her husband had disappeared, she found herself pregnant and could only get support if her husband was declared dead. She, Stephen knew about this, so she told Stephen about this, and he had assured her that she could swear the child because, quote, Russell was dead and he knew it. Oh, shit. She's like, thanks, huh. sis. She also said that she had asked Lewis, her son at the time, what happened to his father. And Lewis had said, quote, gone to hell. Oh, wow. It's a terrible family. Yeah. They're just awful. Mm. So Sally's testimony, very damning, particularly for Stephen. And though his dreams 
of Colvin coming to him had started the whole drama, Uncle Amos stuck to just recounting that I guess he was there for the discovery of the bones and the knives under the stump. He, they didn't let him. They actually did not allow him. Oddly, 1819, I'm, yeah. I was a little surprised by that. His, any testimony about his supposed dreams were not, not allowed. Well, that's good. Yeah, that is good. Convictions for the both brothers were considered a given. They're being tried at the same time, by the way. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew, quote unquote, that the Bourne brothers had murdered Colvin. So indeed, the jury convicted both Stephen and Jesse of murder. Murder. Then on January 18th, 1820, they went before a three-judge panel. I guess in a capital case, a, a panel of the state Supreme Court, of three of the state Supreme Court judges had to say, you know, life in prison or, or, or hanging. Yeah. Apparently. And they said, you are going to be hung. Oh, no. Both brothers yeah. were sentenced to death by hanging. But just a few days later, the Vermont General Assembly, not a lot going on in Vermont at this time. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. State Supreme Court's involved. The General Assembly is involved. So the State General Assembly met to consider the case, and they apparently had this power. Je- they commuted Jesse's sentence to life in prison, yeah. and they, but they upheld Stephen's hanging. execution by hanging. Yeah. Yep. Wow. That sounds reasonable. I mean, I'm against the death penalty. I wouldn't well. sentence either of them to death, but... And then Russell came back. <laughs> Just kidding. Believing in his client... Junior defense lawyer Leonard Sargent placed ads in some newspapers at this time. And actually, he'd done it a little before the, the sentencing. He had done it after the trial. He sent ads out to several newspapers. And it basically it said it gave the background of the case and implored, you know, this is what's happening. This guy was convicted. He didn't do it. This, uh, this guy, Russell Coven, he was convicted of murdering. We think he's still alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you know him... Please stop this terrible miscarriage of justice yeah. and tell us, and we'll, we'll fix this, right? S- save the life of an innocent man if they knew Russell Col- Colvin. It gave a description of Colvin um, and, and basically implored people to come forward, right? If they knew, they knew Colvin wasn't going to, so they, they wanted someone who knew him. Because he's too stupid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, or he Just probably kidding. didn't care yeah, if his brothers in law go to jail or get murdered. Get- Hanged. Fortunately, Sergeant Lawyer chose to publish the ad or sent it as a letter to the New York Evening Post. Mm. This was fortunate because it appeared there on November 26th, 1819. And at this time, also fortunately for him, a lot of people could not read. (laughs) A lot of people. So you know what they did? They would... Someone would, in a public place, like a hotel lobby or a saloon or something like that, they would just read the newspaper out loud wow, for everybody to nice. listen up. It was kind of like nice. early 19th century evening news yeah. kind of a thing. So, what's happening? Oh, let me see. Oh, it's so good. We got something <laughs> Who can going read? On. I, I can. Well, you're the only one. Here's the paper. Again, we're giving them southern accents. Uh-huh. Even though they live in New York. So, that's terrible. Yeah, in this case, New York. So... The post story was read aloud in a New York hotel lobby where a man named Tabor Chadwick, cool name. Nice name. Was from New Jersey. He just passing, happened to be passing through town, was in the hotel lobby and heard the story being read and heard this, in this case, sort of published as a letter to the editor. Turns out Chadwick knew a man who fit that description back in New Jersey. He was from Mm. Dover, New Jersey. He knew a man that sounded just like this guy. 
How and, do you describe him? Uh, about five foot that. 11, brown hair. I mean, quote, as about five feet, five inches high, light complexioned, light colored hair, blue eyes, about 45 years of age. Oh, sure. There's probably only one or two of them. Well, okay, Carrie. That's just crazy. Tabor Chabrick's no fool. That <laughs> this, this person was also a farm hand. Okay. Probably true of 90% of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Name, but we're not done yet. He had appeared in New Jersey several years ago in a state of, quote, mental derangement. Derangement. And he had said he was from Manchester, Vermont. Well, And that his name was Russell. And wait for (laughs) it, he had at the time said his name was Russell Colvin. He now went by a different name, but... This guy, Ch- Chadwick, remembered he had originally called himself Russell Colvin, was from Manchester, fit the description, and, and came at about roughly the same time. Okay. And he was a mental derangement. One wonders if it was a tree limb-induced mental derangement, whatever mm. that means, though. So Chadwick says, i got to do something about this. He fired off two letters, outlined the story, and, and outlined what he knew about it. One was to the New York Evening Post, like again, like a letter to the editor in response to this ad you had about this miscarriage right. of justice. The other was to the postmaster of Manchester, Vermont. He described Colvin, and this this is this is what um, he uh, Chadwick said about his Colvin. He said it was a quote: "A man of rather small stature, round forehead, who speaks very <laughs> fast, has two scars on his head, and appears to be between thirty and forty years of age." Which is not quite right. He also said the man was, quote, completely insane. Oh my God. <laughs> the postmaster of Manchester was Leonard Sargent, Colvin, oh. I mean, I'm sorry, Stevens, lawyer. That was lucky. He's the guy who had placed the ad, right? Yeah. So he rushed to the law and told them about this new exculpatory evidence for his client that would help his client. At least we assume he did because. Nothing I read has anything happening with the letter that went to Manchester, Vermont, and found its way to Leonard Sarge's hand. The the people, the authorities in Manchester shrugged it off, didn't do anything about it. Really? Yeah. Not cool, Manchester. Wow. But remember that second letter to the New York Post? Yep. Yep. That's good because that was published on December sixth, eighteen nineteen. Now we have to have another fortunate coincidence. James Welpley. He was formerly of Manchester, Vermont, now residing in New York City, read the letter in the post, and he knew he had to do something. He rushed back to Dover, New Jersey, where this Russell Coben was working on the farm of his brother-in-law. Oh. So he knew this guy. He knew he had been formerly called Russell Coben. Again, now he uh, called himself something else. By the way, some sources I read say that Chadwick sent Welpley to New Jersey to look up Colvin. I'm not sure which is true. Let's go with this version of it. And so he gets back to Dover, New Jersey, and he laid eyes on Russell Colvin, his Russell Colvin, and he knew right away that was the Russell Colvin from Manchester, Vermont. So he said, hey, come on, dude. You need to go back to Manchester. I'll go with you, and we can save the life of this Stephen Bourne, your brother-in-law, who's going to be hung, by the way, on January 28th, 1820, less than two months away. Yeah. So, Clay's closed. That's it, right? Russell Clothes going to go back to Vermont happily and, right. and get his get the noose from around the neck of his brother-in-law? I'm guessing not. Oh, uh, no. Colvin was having none of it. He claimed, he said, I'm not that Russell Colvin. And, and, I have no intention of going back, going to Vermont with you, and I can care less what happens to Stephen Bourne. 
Luckily, James Welpley did care what happened to Stephen Moore. Damn it. Good. So he was not done with Colvin. He thought up a little scheme. Mm. How do you get a man to go to Vermont? You've won a million dollars. That's a good idea. Go to Manchester, Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> to pick it up. <laughs> to claim your prize. You know what's even better than that, though? Uh-uh. You get a foxy lady. Really? He recruited some young, presumably a very attractive woman, huh. to induce Russell to travel with her back to New York City. Hey, hi there. I just happened to be here in Dover, New Jersey on a farm. Want to come back to New York City with me? I don't know how exactly they worked it, but... He agreed. He's going to go back with Welpley and this attractive young lady to New York City with them. Hmm. I don't know why. Maybe they did tell him he won something. I have no, but in New York. <laughs> yeah. So they told him he's going back to New York, not to Manchester. And he accepted. He went back with them. I'm going to assume he accepted eagerly. Mm-hmm. Once in the city, though, I got like in the train station, she ditched his ass. Gone. So he's left alone with James Welpley. Yeah. No uh, attractive woman anymore. Well, uh, using his superior intellect, well played, which wouldn't have been really hard because this is, remember, this is Jim, Russell yeah. Colvin we're talking about there. He, Welpley told Colvin that there were still, you know, Colvin says, I'm going to go back to New Jersey, so I'm out of yeah. here. He said, well, we, we can't take a ferry, an ocean-going ferry back to New Jersey because there's still warships, there's British warships off the coast. Yeah. This is 1819. This is late 1819. Yeah. This is more than four year, years after the war of 1812 had ended. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I didn't look it up if there really were still British warships patrolling around, but there's been no hostilities. So yeah. like, I guess Colvin's going, oh, shit, I guess we can't do that. Okay. So he, he says, now we better take, instead of taking an ocean-going ferry back to New Jersey, we'll get on a riverboat. How's that going to work? So they got in a riverboat going up the Hudson River, north toward Vermont, not <laughs> south, or I guess southwest, yeah. toward New Jersey. Again, this is a guy who the city took his farm away because he was too stupid to run it. They were right, yeah. it turns out. So he, he falls for it. I, 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 he didn't see the, the big sign on the boat saying Manchester? I don't know. But he takes him up the riverboat, uh, up the Hudson, and he's able to... In, I guess they disembark in Bennington, Vermont. He's now in the state of Vermont. This is key. And he gets him to a county courthouse. He probably said, let's go for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's rest here. And he went into the county courthouse and presumably dramatically interrupted whatever proceeding was going on and said, hey, gentlemen, 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 I have a, the supposedly murdered Russell Colvin, I can tell you, is very much alive. And he's right here with me. <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. Uh, uh, the court, quote, broke up in the greatest confusion <laughs> at this point. Because this, this is a huge story. Yeah. Yeah. state here. So he, they get back. Uh, now he's more or less in state custody. They get on a, on a, I don't know what it was, a train, a stage. I have no idea how they traveled back then. Going to Manchester, <laughs> Welpley telegraphed ahead and to, that, that I'm bringing in Russell Coven. So when they got to Manchester on December 22nd, 1819, a the crowd was basically out there meeting them yeah. as they arrived. Many of those people in the crowd, of course, had known Russell Colvin personally. Mm-hmm. One of the townsfolk that was taken out to the town square, whatever, to meet the stagecoach, let's say, was Stephen Bourne. Mm. Oh. Colvin gets out, and he's looking around the crowd like, what's all this bullshit? When Colvin noticed that Stephen was in fetters, old-timey name for handcuffs, I believe. Mm-hmm. He asked, you know, why? What do they got you like that for, Steve? And Bourne and said, because they say I murdered you. Uh, Colvin answered, you never hurt me. 
Jesse struck me with a briar once, but it did not hurt much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it's like he's all like, what's all the, all what's all the combustion? <laughs> the court, embarrassed, ordered a new trial. You heard that right. A new trial yeah. for the murder of a man who was clearly alive and in their presence. I, I, I they didn't know. just drop old charges? You'd think they would, but they ordered a new trial. What would happen to Lewis's story? Did that ever not even happen? Because I, no, I, that may be what he's talking about—a briar. You know, that's that. But he a said tree it was lip. Jesse. I mean, that actually very likely did happen. Huh. I'm sure that did. But he got up. Yeah. After Lewis took off, he got up and was fine. He yeah. said, "I'm going on my walkabout." And he left. He never came back. He's he probably that's it. I'm done with these yeah. assholes. Yeah. But his wife wasn't there. Sally wasn't there at the time. I'm done. And he found his way to New Jersey, liked the farm he was working at, and decided to stay. Yeah. So when they brought this, they brought the trial in the state pled no pros which means basically declined to prosecute right mm-hmm. and that's it they uh ex- they were jesse and Stephen were exonerated and set free wow colvin was given the chance to sort of kiss and make up with his estranged wife sally he took nah. a hard pass yeah <laughs> so i'm good not. so once the court proceedings were over and and the exoneration was was in he went back to dover new jersey went back to work on the farm living happily and died uh, several years later well, screwed up her plan to get her money from the bio daddy big time the, child the, the bio daddy i like that bio daddy. yeah he did huh. he did actually yeah yeah so that would make that kid his kid uh-huh. and she didn't get no money but you know what she didn't deserve it yeah, she did. Nasty. She's got all those kids to take care who of. Who knows who the father was? Uh-huh. Slut shaming. <laughs> Many sources, though, have openly to this day wondered if weirdly, if Stephen and Jesse always knew they had not killed Russell Colvin. It, well, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase <laughs> that. Actually, actually, not I'm not far off. People have wondered, like, if they knew they didn't kill Russell Colvin, why did they confess? Like that's yeah. some kind of a, a mystery. I mean, well, they've, they've said things like maybe Stephen yeah. thought he did kill Coven and didn't know he wasn't dead. And that's why he confessed later, which is just dumb because he well, also gave a detailed story of how he him. buried his body, yeah. which he didn't bury his body. I, I would say they figured even if he is alive, they're never going to find him. Yeah. He's it's 1819. Yeah. If, if we confess, maybe we won't get. True. Hung. Our, our, we now know false confessions are fairly yeah. common. And, and that's just what happened. For whatever yeah. reason, it could have been to save their own skin. It could have been because they're, you know, who knows what was mm-hmm. going on uh-huh. in the in the jail cell. But it's, it was clearly yeah. a false confession. There's no mystery in false confessions. That's just yeah. a, a dumb tangent. But others say, um, other questions are things like, why did Amos Bourne claim to have those dreams? He had to have known those would put nooses around the necks of his nephews. So it's odd that he was he trying to. Some people think he's trying to frame them. He didn't like them for Maybe. some reason. There's no evidence of that. Was he a little bit nuts? Did he really yeah. have these dreams and really think they were real? Maybe he did. And Maybe yeah. he really thought they'd done it. Maybe he did. He might have. And uh, so, yeah, so maybe he, he wanted justice done and, and it's the only yeah, way he knew how to do it. Yeah. He was a man of unimpeachable characters. That's so. true. Or, as I said originally, impeachable characters. Impeachable character. character. Hard to say. Yeah, no one knows. We'll never know for that for sure. But there's also another theory put forward. It's kind of like a mystery novel twist ending. It was that the Russell Coven of 1820, 1819-20, was not yeah. the Russell Coven of 1812 yeah. who disappeared. I thought I, that, too. I figured that would be a theory, too. He was an imposter. He was uh, to save the Bourne brothers from the consequences of their actual murder, that they really did kill him back in 1812, and they came up with this, this 
idea. Some these same sources, some sources do claim that there was some doubt at the time among folks in Manchester that that wasn't the original Russell Colvin who came back in 1820 or 1819. And they also say that it was Stephen's idea to put the ads out, not the lawyer's idea to put those ads out that did eventually lead to the discovery of Russell Colvin. Yeah. The, hmm. So it could have all been part of their plot. Yeah. To do it. Supposedly, a few years later, Jesse, who's now living in Ohio, was charged in a counterfeit ring in Cleveland. And supposedly, when he was arrested, he admitted to a, one of his Confederates that uh, he had murdered, he and his brother had murdered Russell Colvin back in 1812 and had found a, quote, substitute, though seven years later. That Confederate that he supposedly said that to in the counterfeit ring turned out to be an undercover federal marshal <gasps> who testified, apparently, that Stephen had said this. I'm sorry. Um, Jesse. That Jesse had said this, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Ah, oh, crap. I think it was Jesse. Yeah. Jesse denied this, and the matter was dropped. The authorities never did anything about it, which makes you kind of think maybe it was not true. Yeah. I, again, it's this... Do you really go blabbing about your past crimes to everybody you meet? Yeah. That's just, it just, yeah. those things never read true to me or, or seem true to me. We already kind of went down that road. So that's the story. So, wow. so I mean, the shots in the dark really don't have any. I mean, I guess yeah. we can just say, do you think it was the real Russell Colvin in yeah, 1820 I do. from 1812? I do. I don't know. I, I think need, so. I need more I think information. So. I think so. I mean, you do, but it, it's, it would be, I mean, why did he, if he was a confederate, why would he not go and have to be lured back by a woman unless they just 100% made that whole thing up in which says, mm-hmm. why make it up? Why make that up? Find why not make New Jersey just... and say, oh, sure, I'll come forward. Yeah, of that's course. true. You're being paid. And yeah. then to, uh, presumably, and, and the Bournes didn't have any money. They were poor farmers. How are they going to? Yeah. Do, and, and they would have had to Do have, all this scheme. Welpley would have had to be involved with it. Tabor Chadwick yeah. had to be involved with it. It just doesn't make sense. That seems a little bit too yeah. um, intricate of a plan. It, it's it's a 20th century yeah. mystery novel twist ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it is. It's which just means it's a 20th century fabric you know invention by somebody whoever made it up first. Yeah. Yeah. Other I things, think it was him. I think it was him too. I also thought I, mean, I wonder how many of the memories were that, that supposedly came up were after the fact memories. You know, 1819 when people started to remember what happened seven years ago. I, I just wonder how many of those were real. Like that supposed statement that we'll put him where the potatoes wouldn't freeze or something like that. Yeah. They had him saying that. I, I wonder if that didn't come out after the story started circulating that they had buried him in the potato, potato cellar. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it's just sort of, uh, uh, uh-huh. it's too convenient. Yeah. So I agree. I think yeah. a lot of those memories were fake memories. I think are just, you know, human memory as we know is incredibly unreliable. Or, and also think I definitely think that it was the real Colvin, and he was alive. Yeah, he just had no. It's, it, you know, you leave town, you skip town, you never come back. You have no idea of all this incredible drama that's happening in your absence back in Manchester, mm-hmm. Vermont. And you know, he couldn't have cared less even if he had known about right. it. Right. That's the amazing weird story. Wow. Of, the murder, quote unquote, of Russell Colvin. The saddest thing is that that he clearly didn't love his own children. No, 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 he did not. I'm not convinced Sally did either. <laughs> so Mm-mm. those kids all grew up to be murderers and bank robbers. I have no idea. They were, I'm sure fine upstanding citizens. Yeah, I'll bet they are. Any Colvins out there in Vermont? Give us a ring. 
or let us email. know. Let us know how, how are things. You can how you doing? Fax us. <laughs> fax us or get, hit us up on MySpace. <laughs> That's it. Thank you for listening, Thank everyone. Thank you. Thanks that was interesting. Carrie? Good job. Weird World Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Patreon and Weird World Pod on Twitter. Follow us, like us, subscribe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) See ya. Until next time. Bye.